First Peter chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. You will notice as I read the text this morning that Peter is making a shift. We've been going through the book of First Peter, and at this point, he goes from focusing on the relationship we as Christians have with one another to the relationship we have with the unbelieving world around us. This is a circular letter. That doesn't mean that it goes around in circles. But remember that Peter's readers are scattered across hundreds of square miles. They're living in various towns and cities. And so this letter was designed to be circulated among many churches. One thing that all of these Christians had in common is that they faced persecution for their faith in Jesus. In some cases, this persecution was passive. In other cases, it was active. Much like we are feeling uh, in our modern context, passive persecution, though not physical, includes the pressure of hostility and antagonism and marginalization, especially if you speak of any kind of moral standard or proclaim absolute truth. So look with me at uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, as I read verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is God's word. Some of you have heard of or heard me mention a man named George Mueller. He founded orphanages in England in the 19th century. And what was unique about his approach was that he did not raise funds. He didn't solicit funds for his ministry. He simply trusted God to provide because he knew that God's heart was for the fatherless. And by doing so, by trusting God in this manner, the Lord brought in millions of pounds over the years so that thousands of orphans were provided for and were taught the scriptures. What you probably did not realize is that Charles Dickens was a contemporary of Mueller. While Dickens was writing in his novels about uh, and bringing awareness to the plight of the working poor and the horrible conditions of workhouses and many orphanages of the time, Mueller was doing his own mercy ministry. Dickens heard about Mueller's work and wondered about the uh, real condition uh, of his orphanages. Being famous, Dickens was simply able to show up one day and check things out. Mueller graciously welcomed him, and since he had a previous engagement, he took out his master key, and he gave it to one of the house mothers, and he said to her, show Mr. Dickens whatever he wants to see. And so Dickens, he inspected those orphanages with the keen eye of a critic, and he came away thoroughly impressed by what he saw. Everyone knew George Mueller was a Christian. And if Charles Dickens had so desired, he could have eviscerated his work and ministry in the press and people would have listened. But he did not. Why didn't he? Well, because he observed with his own eyes how those orphanages were run. People don't just need to hear that you're a Christian. The power of your witness is in what they see. What we've learned so far in First Peter is that Christians are a people of hopeful expectation, not because of our circumstances, but because our hope is firmly rooted in the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. On account of spiritual birth into God's family, you and I, we face the trials of life with joy, understanding that God has designed each one to prove the genuineness of our faith, a faith that rests on the certainty of Jesus walking out of that tomb. We've seen as a new people of God, we reflect the nature of God by living lives that reflect his holiness. One of the most significant and impactful ways we do this is by loving one another well. As we embrace our identity as people who God has called from the darkness into his marvelous light, we declare God's wonderful work in history, through creation, and in our lives. And because all of this is true about every Christian, the reason I'm reminding you of this this morning, where we've been, because all of this is true, Peter now turns to telling us what to do about it. So far in 1 Peter, it's as if we've been in boot camp. Only the training that we've received is not so much physical as it is spiritual. The soldier who's in training has information yelled into his head, and his body is forced into shape by by rigorous training and exercise. We've each had knowledge conveyed to us through the truth of God's word, and our souls are shaped by trials appointed by God. Just like the physical training a soldier receives reinforces the words of the drill sergeant, so the difficulties that God allows you to pass through cements his word into your heart. Soldiers from all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities, they bond in boot camp. As they train together, as they suffer together, they're being prepared to work together on the battlefield. Their concern for one another and their ability to cooperate with one another will very well be the difference between life and death. But all the training and knowledge that a soldier receives is not so he can return home with some new skill sets, not so he can have a different outlook on life, though all those things will happen. The knowledge and training are for one purpose, and that's to win on the battlefield. Make no mistake, we are in a war. We've been sent out into hostile territory, and if we're not properly equipped with the knowledge of who we are in Christ, individually and as a church, we will not survive. Of course, our goal is is vastly different than the soldiers. We aren't trying to defeat those who are combative toward us. We are attempting to do exactly what God has done for each and every Christian, and that is make an enemy into a friend. And this is where Peter begins to tell us how to do that here in verses 11 and 12, how to relate to an antagonistic society. In order to be successful in the battlefield, every soldier must let go of certain things in order to embrace other things. He can no longer wear what he wants to wear. He can no longer go where he wants to go. He can no longer eat what he wants to eat. He can no longer live only to entertain himself. Instead, the soldier, what, has to behave in a certain way, both because of the nation that he represents and because his job is to win the war, not lose it. It's the same for the Christian. If we're going to disarm hostility and influence others for good and for God, we must let go of things that are not in line with who God says we are as members of his family. And we must embrace other things that will help us Go into the darkness where lost people dwell without getting consumed by that darkness. 
So I want to consider this morning as we look at our text, three things, what to reject, what to embrace, and what to keep doing. First of all, what to reject. One of the ways that we know Peter is beginning a new section is because of the first word in verse 11, beloved. You might have dear children. That's not quite as strong as as the sense of the word there. Beloved is much better. He's going to use this word again over in chapter 4, verse 12, when he begins the final section of his letter. But more than simply giving his readers division breaks, this word is an intentional reminder of who his readers are. They are loved by Peter. And the reason that Peter feels such deep care and concern for them is because they're loved by God. We love because he first loved us. That's 1 John 4, 19. You know, fear is a great motivator. Fear of falling keeps you from getting too close to the ledge when you're in a national park looking out over that beautiful valley. Fear of injury should you crash motivates you to put your seatbelt on. Fear of prison keeps most people from breaking the law. Fear is a great motivator when it comes to how we behave. But there is something even more motivating than fear, and that is love. If you know that you're someone's beloved, you will do almost anything to please that person. Sure, there are those who act pleasantly toward a spouse or a parent or an employer because they fear the repercussions should they displease that person with whom they're in a close relationship, but that's a shame, and that's not how it should be. That's certainly not the ideal Fear is only going to get you so far. I think we all understand that fear is detrimental to the longevity of a relationship. It does not do anything positive for the heart. Compliance out of fear, it might work in the short run, but it will eventually create distance and bitterness. However, knowing that you're loved transforms the heart. If you know that you're loved, then you genuinely want to please the one who loves you. You behave in such a way that reflects well on the relationship. You are personally invested. This is the power of love. When I was growing up, the thing that often kept me out of trouble, and I I didn't always stay out of trouble, the thing that often kept me out of trouble was not fear of my parents as much as it was knowing that my parents who loved me would be grieved by my bad behavior. And for all of us who have been in love, we know the heights and the depths to which we will go to please the one who loves us. It's God's love expressed through Peter that first of all will motivate his readers to let go of the behaviors that wage war against the soul. What are these behaviors? Well, Peter calls them in verse 11, fleshly lust. I've mentioned before that we tend to think of lust only in in the realm of inappropriate sexual desire. This is what the word has been narrowed down to mean. But in the New Testament, the word translated lust has a much broader definition. It means sinful desire. It's any desire that finds its source in the flesh instead of in the spirit. And though every Christian receives the Holy Spirit the moment that he or she believes, the battle between the flesh and the spirit, it only begins at that point of conversion. You understand this. And this is why war language is employed in verse 11. These fleshly lusts, they wage war against the soul. 
Before the text even begins to address the need for excellent behavior in order to influence others, it addresses the, the types of desires that are harmful to your soul. They're in battle against you. This phrase, wage war, it means to serve as a soldier. So your and my sinful desires within are acting as soldiers determined to win. You must wage battle with your own flesh. Your enemies are not those outside of the church. Your enemy is yourself. My enemy is myself. If you turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, if you turn there, you'll find a list of behaviors. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. There's a list of behaviors that are sourced, that find their source in the flesh. Now, the flesh here does not refer to your physical body. Again, it refers to the sinful nature that remains active even after you become a Christian. And that passage reads, Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Which is a catch-all phrase for any other behaviors that are contrary to the will of God. Now notice how some of these behaviors I just read off are very evident outwardly, like immorality or outburst of anger, drunkenness, outward manifestations. But many of them are more inward, and they aren't always as visible. They are observed more in one's attitude or maybe detected or heard in one's words. So this would be things like enmities and jealousies, dissensions, factions. In fact, these are precisely the sins of the flesh that tend to keep us as brothers and sisters from getting along. Based on feedback one church consultant received from various Christians in various denominations, here are a few actual examples about what church members have bickered about. An argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. An argument over whether the clock and the worship center should be removed. A big church-wide argument over a 10-cent discrepancy in the church budget. Thankfully, someone finally and graciously gave a dime to settle the issue. Some members left one particular church because another member hid the vacuum cleaner. And this eventually led to a church split. An argument over whether the dusty fake plant should be removed from the pulpit. There are more. I'll stop there. You get the picture? I'm sure that you have your own story of ridiculous church infighting. If we can get some outside perspective, most of the things that we fight about make us look petty and absurd. But I think we all understand that the issues that we tend to fight over have nothing to do with what's uh, being fought over, have nothing to do with what's really going on. They have everything to do with desires that spring from our flesh. These fleshly desires, they, they first wage war against your soul, and then they proceed to wage war against other Christians. And if the enemy can keep us infighting, which is the opposite of loving one another well, then we have no chance of influencing anyone outside of the church. We have to get ourselves together first. The battle is continual. And in saying this, I'm not saying we as a church are out of sorts. I'm just saying these are things we need to guard. This present tense 
uh, verb here is not as evident in the English as in the Greek, but it gives us the idea of these sinful desires uh, being continually waging war against your soul and mine. Because they continually wage war, we must continually be on the guard against them. Let us not miss that if these desires of the flesh are waging war against the soul, then this tells us they are harmful to the soul. And, this, and the soul here, it means the non-physical, the, the spiritual part of you. Yet if these desires are fed, they will eventually result in the bad behavior and wrongful actions that are manifest on the outside. But long before you get to that point, when you entertain sinful desires in your thought life and with your attitude, they have a rotting effect on the soul. They are self-destructive. Coddling jealousy, stirring up dissension with your comments, loving to quarrel, entertaining impure thoughts, uh, giving ultimate allegiance in your heart to anything other than God, which is idolatry. All of these things will make you spiritually weak. What happens when you're losing a battle? You become weaker. They will break down the harmony of your fellowship with God. They will render you ineffective. You want to know why so many Christians are ineffective in their witness to others? It's because they're damaging their own souls by indulging in the desires of the flesh. You cannot expect to help anybody spiritually if you aren't even willing to help yourself. If you're not aware of the flesh and you're not continually waging war against it, you are losing to it. A soldier who sleeps on duty may still technically be a soldier, but he is certainly not an effective one. He is not winning any battles while he's snoozing. The sinful desires that wage war against our souls, they do not rest. And neither must we if we are to abstain from fleshly lust. We understand, therefore, what to reject. But how? Well, this has to do with what to embrace. What to embrace. Peter begins verse 11 with, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. It's because we are something that we do something. What are we? Well, with language we've already uh, become familiar with from chapter 1, verse 1, we are aliens and strangers. And the two words, they have nearly the same meaning, but there's a slight difference. A stranger is, is transient. He's passing through. He knows that the place where he finds himself is not his home. It's not his final destination. Then you have an alien who's someone that may reside in a certain place, but not as a citizen. He doesn't have the same status, which conveys rights and privileges as those around him because he is only a resident. He's an alien. He's temporary. So if we combine these two terms, aliens and strangers, it gives us the idea of someone who is only passing through and does not have the same social standing or status as those around him. For many of Peter's readers, this was their actual position. They were transitory workers. They were often only settling in one place temporarily and then moving on as soon as work dried up or other opportunities arose elsewhere. For every Christian, of course, this is true in a spiritual sense. We are all aliens and strangers. On one hand, if you're a follower of Jesus, your citizenship is in a city yet to come. You have all the rights and privileges bestowed upon you as a child of God, but that does not automatically mean that you have the rights and privileges wherever you may live in this life. Many believers 
around the world, they, they know about this experientially. Because they are Christians, they do not have certain rights and privileges. So as spiritual strangers, we realize that we are simply passing through. The problem is too many of us live our lives here on earth like this is our final destination. With Independence Day coming up in a couple of days, we remember and we're incredibly thankful for all the civil rights that we possess simply because the Lord decreed that each of us be born in this nation. That's the only reason. But even for the incredible benefits this country has to offer, we cannot forget that we are still strangers. And society around us, if you haven't noticed, is more and more reminding us of this. You and I, we should feel strange in a society that increasingly endorses ungodly expressions and behaviors. Peter, undoubtedly, he had Abraham, Abraham in mind, the father of the Jewish people, when he wrote this. We know this because back in Genesis chapter 23, we find the same idea as aliens and strangers. Abraham, he's an old man by this point. His wife, Sarah, has died at 127 years old. And he is looking for a place to bury her. Even though Abraham has been in Canaan for 60 years, he still does not own a piece of land. God had promised to give him and his descendants all of Canaan. Yet up until now, when he finally buys a cave to bury his beloved wife, he owed nothing. Everything he possesses, he possesses by faith. And this is what he says, what Abraham says to the sons of Heth in Genesis 23, 4. I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. This phrase, a stranger and a sojourner, it's the same in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the version that Peter would have been familiar with as Peter's strangers and aliens. It's the same phrase in Greek. So what is Peter doing? He's pointing us back to Abraham's experience to help us understand ours. Abraham was called out of his home in Mesopotamia. He followed the call of a God he hardly knew over a vast distance in the ancient world to a land he didn't know at all. Abraham lived his entire life as a stranger and an alien. Yet, and we don't need to miss this, even though Abraham was estranged from those around him, he was right in the middle of God's will. Think about that. Alienation or rejection is not necessarily an indicator that you have been rejected by God. In fact, if you were following the Lord, alienation and rejection are a sign that you're on the right path. Abraham was considered odd and maybe even dangerous because he refused to take part in the pagan worship going on around him. Peter's readers were considered strange because they refused to attend the local temples and worship the Roman gods. They were considered dangerous because they gave their ultimate allegiance not to Caesar, but to King Jesus. We've already learned that as Christians, we should not view trials as God's disappointment. But rather, we should view trials as God's way of refining our faith. We need to also learn that we should not view rejection by men as God's disapproval. Sometimes the very fact that you were socially isolated is the sign of God's approval. It was for Abraham. 
Think about it. I know I've mentioned the matter of sexuality several times lately, but I, I do so because it's one of the main battlefronts of our generation. Every generation of Christians must fight different battles than their predecessors. There are always two or three primary battles that we need to identify as our responsibility to fight in our generation. And one of these is definitely the battle for a biblical view of sexuality. It is at our doorstep. And the reason is obvious. Our American culture is leading the way for the rest of the world into the darkness in this area. Whether it's producing pornography or making everything somehow an LGBTQ plus promotion point, the society that we are immersed in has forced the issue of unbiblical sexuality to the forefront. Are you ready for it? In an age when so many people are so easily offended by any opinion they disagree with, there is hardly anything more offensive than plainly stating that God's design for sexuality is one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant of marriage. Just try saying that these days. Here's the point of Peter reminding us we are strangers and aliens. We need to embrace these labels. We need to embrace them. Because this lifetime is not all there is, and because this world is not our final destination, we do not give in to desires that spring from our flesh. To do so is to deny our real and lasting home in the presence of God, where such things that threaten to destroy our souls will not be a reality. So we have a responsibility as aliens and strangers here on earth. We embrace these labels and we embrace what they imply. Only then are we able to conduct ourselves in a way that pleases God. And that's what we see in verse 12. What to keep doing. What to keep doing. Many of the Christians Peter is writing to are being slandered as evildoers. In other words, lies are being spread about them to the effect that it is damaging the reputation of the church. We don't know exactly what these lies were, but we do have historical records of some things that were said about early Christians several decades after Peter wrote his letter. Christians were accused of cannibalism, of holding women in common, of antisocial behavior. Uh, they were accused of shameful and degraded practices. They were accused of hating the human race. If you type into a search engine today, what is the perception of Christians to non-Christians? I did this yesterday. You will get things like intolerant, anti-scientific, misogynistic, harsh, exclusionary. Are there Christians who come across in these ways? Yes, unfortunately so. But to perpetuate the idea that all Christians are intolerant, anti-scientific, misogynistic, harsh, and exclusionary, well, that's slanderous. It can feel daunting, however, when you realize the public opinion of Christianity these days. It's also disheartening. We wonder how to change such misperceptions. Well, Peter tells us. Amazingly, he does not advise for you to go around and correct everyone. Not even on the internet. He doesn't advise you to set the record straight. He does not say to take every opportunity to deny these accusations. He doesn't say make it your life's ambition to combat such slander with your words or with your keyboard. He simply says to live in such a way that your God-honoring behavior is on display. Keep your behavior excellent 
among the Gentiles, verse 12. The churches Peter's writing to are full of both Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus. And the reason he uses the word Gentiles here is because it is a general designation for unbelievers, for pagans, for people who worship false gods, and for people who live lives that reflect their belief in that which is not true. One of the most striking things about the early Christians was their behavior. It was so different. It was so countercultural. For all the falsehoods that were spread about them, no one could deny the upright way in which they conducted themselves. That was undeniable. They did not just refuse to take part in pagan sacrifices or pagan worship services. They consistently lived at a high moral standard. Everyone in the Roman Empire in the first century was religious. But their religion extended about as far as the rituals involved in worship of the local gods. Even, the, even then, we know from the book of Acts that some of these practices that took place in those worship services were immoral in and of themselves. With the exception of the Jewish populations in the major cities, people definitely did not largely concern themselves with personal morality. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a big deal. So basically, outside of breaking the law, anything went. Religion, it just simply gave cohesion and stability to society. But it did not penetrate the heart. When Peter uses the word behavior, he's referring to the pattern of your life. A pattern that reflects the penetration of the gospel into your heart. This is what makes the difference. How are you living day in and day out? You know, anyone can be on their best behavior for a day, or a week, or maybe even a season. Anyone can talk about Jesus, and you should be doing so. But it is too rare, and it's very noticeable when those who claim to know Jesus live in such a way that their claims are validated. There's no doubt Peter has the words of Jesus in mind here from Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He writes nearly the same thing in verse 12, that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The thing about good deeds is that they, they cannot be hidden. Sometimes we as Christians, we get jumpy at the mention of good deeds. Because we know we're saved by faith and faith alone, we get a little uneasy with the idea. But that's only because we fail to make the distinction between good works one does to earn God's favor versus good works one does because they have already received God's favor. There's all the difference in the world. Doing good deeds to earn salvation reveals that you have not yet understood the gospel. Doing good deeds as a result of salvation reveals you do understand the gospel. It's all about motives. Peter, nor Jesus for that matter, could imagine anyone calling themselves a Christian and not doing good works. Paul writes in Titus 2.8, This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Do you hear the connection there? Those who have believed will do good works. These good works, they do not add anything to Jesus Christ, to what he's already done for you, they do, however, reflect that you have embraced by faith what Jesus has done for you. 
the earliest Methodists converted to John Wesley's preaching, they experienced hostility in just about every town where groups of them were established. One scholar writes, the persecution of Methodists took many forms, perhaps the hardest to bear for those least often recorded, such as the eviction of church members from their homes and jobs, or the unnerving social ostracism which made life intolerable in many villages and families. The persecution usually described in the journals of the Methodist pioneers, however, was that inflicted by the mob, which could range from a knot of village youths throwing stones to the ferocious urban crowds, which cruelly assaulted worshipers in Exeter in 1745 and Norwich in 1752. A number of houses, generally of poor people, were wrecked or sacked. Many persons, women and children among them, were cruelly beaten, and some scarred or injured for life. John Wesley was used of the Lord to bring thousands to Christ and to spark a revival in Britain that lasted 65 years and spread to the United States. We know it over here is the Great Awakening. I say that because Wesley definitely understood the importance of using words to proclaim Christ. Yet he also understood the best way to combat slander and persecution was through deeds. I share this again because of a famous statement Wesley made. I've read it before. Do all the goods you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever it was largely because of the excellent behavior of those early Methodists that England did not go the bloody way of anti-Christian revolution like her neighbor France. So what happens when your excellent behavior is observed by those who accuse you of evil things that are not true? We read that some will glorify God in the day of visitation. What in the world does that mean? Well, the day this refers to is, of course, the day of Jesus' return. The day of visitation is the day of judgment when everyone, believer and unbeliever, will give an account to the Lord. Those who will glorify God on, the, on that day are those who will stand before him with confidence. Not confidence in themselves, but the confidence which comes with the assurance of God's acceptance because they trusted Christ in this life. But do you hear what he's saying here? There are those who will observe your excellent behavior. And it will have a profound influence on them. The consistent testimony of your life will point them to the reality of Jesus' life within you. They will realize what they formerly believed about your supposed evil intentions was a lie. And God will use your walk with him to reveal their need for the one who delivered you from a meaningless way of life by giving you his life. What this is saying in verse 12 is that God intends for there to be people who become Christians and therefore glorify him at Jesus' return because of how you live your life. This is sobering. This is a clarifying responsibility. This means two things. One, you must keep your behavior excellent if you desire to be used by God for the salvation of others. And two, the effect your life will have on others is often a long game. 
the way people will see that you consistently walk with Jesus is when enough time passes, what will draw them to the Lord? Now we come to the final consideration. The only way that you can keep your behavior excellent, the only way that I can keep my behavior excellent is because Jesus Christ never failed to behave in a way that pleased his Father in heaven. Jesus was slandered as an evildoer. He knew all about that. Whereas you and I, in fact, have been evildoers. Jesus never was. Yet he went to the cross as an evildoer. The punishment for every ungodly deed committed by you and me, it fell on him. Jesus was judged as an evildoer so that evildoers like us may go free. If you've trusted Christ, your sins have been removed. Your account is clear. More than that, as a believer in Jesus, you know that on the cross, because Jesus was treated as if he lived your sinful life, you are now treated as if you lived his righteous life. Let that sink in. You are now in a position to consistently walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. The cross deals with your sins. The resurrection ensures new life in the Spirit. We can't separate the cross and the resurrection. The behavior expected of Christians is not sourced in the flesh, but it's in the Spirit. It's not your doing. It is God's supernatural doing through you. C.S. Lewis wrote, After the first few steps in our Christian life, we realize that everything that really needs to be done in our souls can only be done by God. Have you realized that? This is so often where we're mistaken. We come to God needy, realizing that we can't save ourselves. And so we trust that Jesus has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. But then, having been saved, we try to live the Christian life in our own strength. We try our own strength to keep our behavior excellent. You can no more do so than you can rid yourself of your sin. Salvation is a gift of God, and so is sanctification. You must lean on the Lord today, tomorrow, and the next day, just as you did on the day that you were saved. In this way, and only in this way, would the life of Christ be manifest through you. It's His excellent behavior lived out through you by faith. Then you will be in a position to bear witness to that life of Christ within you, to those around you. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we have been challenged by your word this morning. We understand simply by taking a moment's reflection that there is a war going on within us between the flesh and the spirit. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have overcome. The flesh, though active, is ultimately powerless. And so help us to lean into you. Help us to trust you. Help us to, to clear out whatever is keeping you from working through us so that we might live lives that bring other people to you, Father. May they be influenced by how they see Jesus in us. And we pray this in Jesus.